Acts chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. It seems that Herod was about to do with Peter that which he did with John the Baptist, bring him out on a plate for the Passover. Verse 5, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing by the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and keepers before the door of the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord came upon him, and light shone in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird thyself, and bind on your sandals. And so he did. He said to him, Cast your garment about me and follow me. So here we have a wonderful type of the sinner, the unregenerate sinner, and his salvation. We see in verse 6, when Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. He was sleeping. The Bible tells us the sinner is sleeping. The sinner is in a dream world. His understanding is darkened. He's alienated from the life of God through the ignorance of sin because of the blindness of his heart. Now, I'm sure you've had experience in dreaming. I know that when you dream, that somehow when you're dreaming, there's a sense that what you're seeing is real. I mean, you can float across the sky hand in hand with an elephant. And when you're dreaming it, it seems sensible. Until you wake up in the morning, go to tell your wife or someone else, and then you realize it was insane. It was a world of insanity. And that's the state of the ungodly. His understanding is darkened. He lives in a dream world. And his philosophies of evolution and atheism, I mean nonsensical philosophies, philosophies that make no sense whatsoever, seem real to him until he comes under the sound of the call to salvation. Awake, you who sleep, rise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Now, like Peter, the sinner is bound with two chains. The chains are the chains of death and hell. He's in a prison of his own sins, bound with two chains, the chain of death and the chain of hell. Now, when I was a little kid, about seven, my brother took me to see a movie. And if you want to scar a child for life, this is the movie. It's called The Scarlet Pimpernel. And it was a story about French aristocrats who were taken and put in a cart to the streets of Paris, right in the heart of Paris, and their heads were chopped off with a guillotine. And I sat there like a little kid, my eyes like saucers, terrified. And around the guillotine were these all ugly hags, toothless hags. I mean, they're so ugly. If they went down the beach, the tide wouldn't come in. <laughs> And her head was lopped off into a basket that knit another stitch on these scarves. And the scarves they were knitting were about 15 feet long. And it horrified me as a little kid. And as I grew up, I began thinking to myself, imagine being in a prison. And he put in a car and taken to the streets of Paris. And they're taken to the, to the square. And I'm waiting for a chopper to come. Imagine waiting on death row. And as time went on, I began to see that as a state of humanity. We are in a prison. We're in a holding cell. 
we're under death sentence. The wages of sin is death. Did you know the number one killer in the U.S. is death? Did you know that? Did you know we're all part of the ultimate statistic? Ten out of ten die. But every beat of a heartbeat is another beat, drum beat of a funeral march. Life is just a little dash between two dates on a tombstone, as has been well said. The sinner sits in the prison of his sins. And some of you may have seen the, the wonderful film Ben-Hur, a great movie. Well, Judah Ben-Hur is a galley slave. He's sitting in a ship. He's totally innocent as a galley slave. And so that the, the rowers are committed to the cause, what they do when they go into the heat of battle is they chain the prisoners to the ship. So they'll keep on rowing because they don't want the ship to sink. Good way to get commitment from your crew. <laughs> and as they were going into battle, the captain, for some reason, has a merciful attitude, a benevolent attitude to Judah Ben-Hur. And he says, don't put it, the chain, through the link in number 41. And Ben-Hur can't believe what's happened to him as they go into battle. Everyone else is chained to the ship except him. As they went into battle, a ship comes along, crunches the side of the ship, and it begins to sink, begins to sink. And all the men just drop their oars and they begin pulling at the chains and ripping at their flesh because you'd rather lose a leg than drown. Now, Ben-Hur was totally innocent. He could have just got the edge of that ship and dived off and swam to freedom. But he didn't. He went for the guy with the keys. He throttled them. He grabbed the keys. He unlocked the chain and released the captives. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you and I. He was the only one who was innocent, the only one who was not in the prison of his sins, chained to death and hell. But instead of saving himself, he went for the guy with the keys. And he said, I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and have the keys to death and hell. And through his death and the resurrection, he unlocked the chains of death. And the tragedy is that the whole of humanity sits in ignorance in that ship, not knowing that the chains have been released. And all they have to do is obey the gospel to be saved from that sinking ship. Amen. You know, when I was a, a brand new Christian, 22 years ago, I did not look like this. I was a surfer. I had my own surf shop. And I think the idea with surfers is you try to look as much like seaweed as you possibly can. <laughs> and I was there. My hair was down upon my shoulders. I mean, it was just like matted rope. It was sun bleached. It was blonde. Goldy kind of blonde. I lost three brushes. I didn't dress like this. I mean, this is tasteful. Matching. See, matching. Little gold piece here. Matching pants. Socks. Black shoes. Now, when I, when I was brand new Christian, I had bright orange corduroys. Bright turquoise shirt with big white flowers on it. So that's why it surprised me I've been a Christian about two or three weeks when suddenly an elderly Presbyterian minister dressed in a suit who was 90 years old came into my surf shop put his hand out he said I heard you, heard you become a Christian I've just come to encourage you and shook my hand and left $10 in my hand I like that man right from the moment I met him <laughs> and I was amazed because there was no generation gap we were just brothers in Christ and for two years I went around to visit him we just had a wonderful fellowship and one day his wife called and said, George is about to die. Would you come and be with him at this time? He's about 92. So I said, sure. So I went around. And she was on the phone at the doorway of the bedroom. And the phone had a real loud ring because he was partly deaf. 
And I went in and I'd never seen George without his teeth. And when I saw him, I thought, boy, he's left. Three weeks ago. And anyway, I sat beside him. And he said, is that you, Ray? And I said, yeah, George, it's me. And I took him by the hand. He said, oh, I can go to be with Jesus. And I thought to myself, what a privilege I have of being here when a saint goes marching through to glory. And I sat with him for about 20 minutes. And I began thinking thoughts, how will he go, Lord? I mean, how will he go? After 20 minutes, suddenly George, lying there, he raised his right hand to the sky. He said, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Oh. And I thought, wow, what a way to go. Suddenly the phone rang, he sat up, and I was the one that just about died. <laughs> last another two years. (laughs) But when he did die, I went to his funeral and they sung, To God be the glory, great things he has done, so lovely the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life and atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go in. Saints, we have a glorious gospel. Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now listen very carefully because this is going to sound like blasphemy. Listen real close. But the gospel does not awaken a sleeping sinner. Listen to Ephesians 5 verse 4. Awake you who sleep, rise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. The light comes after the awakening. You see, almost everybody in the United States knows that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Isn't that true? They know the gospel. We celebrate the gospel at Easter and at Christmas. I mean, we know that Jesus Christ died for our sins. But look at verse 7 of our text. And behold, an angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shone in the prison. But Peter was not awakened by the light. Look at it. And he smote Peter on the side. And raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off from his hand. The light was not enough to awaken him. He had to be smitten. And that word smote in the Greek is pateso, and it means to sting as a scorpion, to strike with repeated blows. So the angel just didn't say, Peter, wake up. No, it was whack. (laughs) (coughs) So the gospel doesn't awaken sinners. That is not the purpose of the gospel. The way to awaken sinners is with God's law, His commandments. Now, John Wesley said, in writing to a young evangelist, preach 90% law and 10% grace. So, what? 90% law, 10% grace. It's like this. I'm a doctor. You're a patient. You have a terminal disease. You're going to die. You don't realize it. Now, I have the cure. Now, I want you to take the cure. How am I going to handle this? Well, I'm going to say, come in, come in here, sit down. I've got something serious to speak to you about. I mean, this is really serious. Sit down. You have a terrible disease. And I get out a dictionary, a medical dictionary, and show you the name of the disease. Show you what the symptoms are. And I see you beginning to shake somewhat. And then I get out x-rays and show you the x-rays of this poison seeping through your body. And I begin to see sweat come to your brow. And I say to myself, Good. He's beginning to see the seriousness of the situation. 
and I talk to you for ten minutes about the disease, how long am I going to have to talk to you about the cure? Not very long at all. Because the knowledge of the disease and its terrible consequences give you desire for the cure. And that's the function of God's law. That's why Wesley said preach 90% law, 10% grace. Now Wesley, you see, the law is a schoolmaster, <coughs> excuse me, the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That's his function. Paul said, by the law is the knowledge of sin. He said, by the commandment, sin became exceedingly sinful. By the commandment. First Timothy says, the law is good if it's used lawfully for the purpose for which it was designed. Psalm 19 verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. That's its function. The law brings knowledge of the disease of sin. The gospel is the cure. And you don't awaken them with a the cure. You awaken them with knowledge of the disease so they'll take the cure. You see, the law is a schoolmaster. You don't shoot the schoolmaster after you graduate. Do you? You shouldn't. You say, hey, thank you, schoolmaster. And I hope you stay schoolmaster and do your job that others may also graduate. John Wesley, in speaking the smiting power of the law, firstly he says the law is given to convert the soul. And then he says, there has been one in an age who have been wakened by hearing that God was in Christ reconciling the world back to himself. That's the gospel. One in an age. But it is the ordinary method of the Spirit of God to convict sinners by the law. Let me give you a quote from our, our book, America, America. This is a quote from a man I'm sure you're familiar with. It should be if you know history in the U.S. Dwight or Timothy Dwight, the founder of Yale University, said, Few, very few, are ever wakened or convicted by the encouragements and promises of the gospel, but almost all by the denunciations of the law. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, said, I never knew but one person in the whole course of my ministry who acknowledged that the first notions or motions of religion in his heart arose from a sense of the goodness of God. But I think all besides who have come within my notice have rather been awakened to fly from the wrath to come by the passion of fear. See what he's saying? Ralph Barnard said, The preaching of the gospel is but sounding brass and tinkling cymbals if it falls into the ear of the best man out of hell who has not been awakened to his awful condition by the thunderings of the law. You see, when the wrath of the law is enforced, its demand for capital punishment makes the criminal anxious to be pardoned. And that was Paul's experience in Romans 7, 7 through the 13. Now I'd like to, with the help of God, if this tickle won't stop me in my throat, <coughs> share with you a few instances of how I, using God's law, smite sinners. And don't do this if you want to stay in your comfort zone. Okay? Firstly, if you want to witness effectively to sinners, relate to them first. Let them feel your sanity. Don't just come up and blurt out spiritual things. For the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, they're foolishness to him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually understood. First the natural, then the spiritual. Follow the example of Jesus in John chapter 4. Relate to the sinner. And I often do this by just talking about the weather, talking about something topical, and then bringing up the Christian subject. Like, did you see this? Or did you get one of these? And give them a tract. Now, how do you get 
from bringing up a Christian tract and saying, oh, it's a Christian tract, to God's law. It's as simple as this. You just say to them, do you think you've kept the Ten Commandments? Just do it kind of casually. Now, they'll react probably by saying, I have pretty much maybe broke one or two. You say, well, let's go through them. Say, have you ever told a lie? And they'll usually say, oh, yeah, one or two fibs or white lies. Say, what does that make you? They say, oh, fibber. Say, no, a liar. (laughs) (coughs) They say, ah, yeah. Say, have you ever stolen something? And if they say no, they say, oh, I don't believe you. You've just told me you're a liar. (laughs) This really does work. They say, come on, come on, be honest. Have you ever stolen something, even if it's small? And they say, yeah. I say, what does that make you? And they say, thief. They know Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust after her, you commit adultery in your heart. Ever done that? Yeah, plenty of times. Oh man, by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving adulterer at heart. <laughs> and you have to face God on judgment day. And we've only looked at three of the Ten Commandments. There's another seven with their barrels pointed at you. And then you just say, hey, do you think you'll be innocent or guilty on the day of judgment? And they say, guilty. You say, do you think you'll go to heaven or hell? You know what they answer? Heaven. They do. They say heaven. And so you say, so you think God is good and he'll just overlook your sins. They, yes, that's it. So we'll try that in a court of law. You've committed rape, murder and drug pushing. The judge says you're guilty. All the evidence is here. Anything to say before I pass sentence, say back to him, well, God, I think, uh, judge, I think you're a good man and you'll just overlook my crimes. The judge would probably say, you're right about one thing. I am a good man, and because I am good, I'm going to see that justice is done and that you're going to be punished. And the very thing that sinners are hoping will save them on the day of judgment, his goodness, will be the very thing that will condemn them. Because God, because he's good, will judge sinners on the day of wrath. You see, it's very, very hard in such a gospel-hardened society to bring a right understanding of God's character and his nature. Because the average unregenerate person thinks that God is his friend. The gospel has been painted, or has painted the modern gospel, a perspective of God being one of benevolence rather than wrath. One of being a friend rather than an enemy. And yet the Bible says we're enemies of God in our minds through wicked works. Whosoever therefore is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. We're enemies of God. His wrath abides upon us. A guy came to our door just this evening before dinner (coughs) trying to sell something. A young man took him through the commandments. And it's just as I finished, there was a thunder roll in the background. I said, hear that? He says, yeah. I said, God's angry at you. Has ra- <laughs> Do you know the word hallelujah, which is so often bandied about, especially in Hollywood and old movie, they have a drunk sinner, hallelujah. Do you know it's not even mentioned in the Bible? The word is hallelujah four times in the book of Revelation. And it's said by the angels when one of God's judgment comes upon the earth. One of his judgments is poured out. You see, heaven rejoices when justice is done. Just like you and I rejoice. When some murdering rapist is brought to justice, we say, God, they got him. We rejoice, even as sinners. And all heaven rejoices when God's wrath is poured out upon the wicked. And his justice will be so thorough on the day of judgment. You say, but doesn't the goodness of God lead us to repentance? Good idea to check that verse out because many of today's Christians say, well, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. We're just to speak of God's goodness. Well, that verse is in Romans 2 verse 4. 
And I, I think we'll turn to it because I think it's such an important scripture. Because if Paul is saying the goodness of God leads us to repentance, therefore we are just to speak of men's goodness, then he's a hypocrite because he didn't obey the command he was given. Because you look at the context of it. He's not speaking of God's goodness as a tool to bring men to Christ. Starts off, therefore you're an excusable man who, whoever thou judged, for wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you do the same things. But we're sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them who commit such things. And do you think this, O man, you that judge those that do such things, that you shall escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing the goodness of God leads you to repentance? You see, it's God's goodness, his mercy, his character, his grace, that grants us repentance, that draws us to himself. For no man can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. Salvation is of the Lord. And this scripture is wrapped in wrath. But after your hardness and impenitent heart, you're treasuring at wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who render to every man according to his deeds, to them who are patient, continuous, and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, everlasting life. But to them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul that does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. And then it goes, for as many as are sent in the law shall be judged by the law. And then straight through it says, verse 17 and 18, Paul begins opening up the law, the Ten Commandments through verse 22 and 23. So what he's doing, he's not saying that we're to speak of God's goodness to bring me into Christ. That would be so against what he's doing at that particular point. So against what Jesus did, who always gave law to the proud and grace only to the humble. Listen to John Wesley. The second use of the law is to bring him unto life, unto Christ, that he may live. It is true in performing both these offices, it acts the part of a severe schoolmaster. It drives us by force rather than draws us by love. And yet love is the spring of it all. Hear what Wesley's saying? That's the motivation. Why do I want to make, do I make sinners tremble because I don't like them? No, it's because I care for them and I know they must find a place of biblical repentance. And Paul said in Romans 7, verse 7, I had not known sin but by the law. To continue on this thought, turn to John 9, verses 1 through to 7. John 9, 1 to 7. And Jesus heals a man who was born blind. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. When he thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. And said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is being interpreted, sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Now the question arises, why did Jesus put clay on the blind man's eyes? I mean, he didn't need to. This was the Son of God. The creator of the universe manifests in the flesh. One whisper from the Son of God and every blind man on the face of the earth could be healed. So why did he use clay? Well, there's the normal interpretation that it was a, a test for the man's faith. Now, think of it. It's, it's like, remember Naaman, the Syrian? He was tested in the same way. He had leprosy. He went to the prophet. The prophet said, go and wash up in the river Jordan. Bob up and down like a rubber ducky seven times. And he, I mean, this was a humbling thing. 
If I wasn't so proud, I would show you what he had to do. I'd bob up and down. But I would feel stupid. <coughs> and this is the captain of the Syrian guard. And when he went down with a sixth time come up, skin was like that of a baby's. Faith and obedience. And this was the same with his blind man. Think of the incident. Here we have this man who was born blind. He'd never seen. No doubt he had prayed every day of his life. Oh, God, give me eyes. Let me see. Let these eyes work. Let me see light. Let me see color and beauty that everybody talks about. One day he heard about Jesus of Nazareth. And he heard that he was in town. He'd heard of the healings. Blind Bartimaeus. And did, Jesus did so many miracles they couldn't be recorded in the books. And no doubt was blazed abroad what he'd been doing. His heart was filled with faith as he stood there. Perhaps he whispered to his friend, is it really him? And his friend said, yeah, this is, this is the man from Galilee. It's him. The blind man thought, wow, what should I do? Should I call out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. Will he touch my eyes? And while he's waiting, filled with faith, he hears, <laughs> what? So he turns, he says, hey, what happened? The guy says, sir, the healer man just spat on the ground. So he thought, well, some things in life do leave a nasty taste in your mouth. I can understand that. Who doesn't spit it sometime or other? Mike's waiting. He says, what's he doing now? And his friend says, he's making spitballs in the mud. And while he's standing there, wondering what's going to happen next, he feels <coughs> on his eyes. He says, what? Now, at that point in time, he could have been offended. Think about it. He could have said to himself, who does this guy think he is? I was born blind. Is the crowd having a good laugh? But no. He obeyed the voice of the Son of God. He went to the pool and washed and came seeing. So it was a test of his faith and his humility. Here's another thought, and one I've had, and one that really makes sense to me. The mud on the blind man's eyes necessitated his cleansing. He had no reason to wash until he perceived he was unclean. Without the mud on his eyes, Jesus could have said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. He probably would have said, why, Lord? I'm not unclean. But the mud gave him reason. It gave him impetus to go and wash. And when you and I take the time to apply the clay tablets of God's law on the darkened understanding of the sinner, and he perceives his guilt, he perceives his uncleanness, then he has reason to go to the pool of the gospel to wash. And until he is aware that he's unclean, he will not go to wash. Listen to what Spurgeon said. No man will ever put on the robe of Christ's righteousness till he is stripped of his fig leaves. Nor will he wash in the fount of mercy till he perceives his filthiness. <coughs> Therefore, my brethren, we must not cease to declare the law, its demands, its threatenings, and the sinner's multiplied breaches of it. <coughs> Excuse me. I have a tadpole in my throat that's trying its best to develop into a frog. <laughs> waiting for it to leap out. Trying to drown it, <coughs> but I think it's still a tadpole and enjoying it. If it was a frog, it would drown it. <coughs> By God's word at last, my sin I learned, says the hymn writer. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned, till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. It's like this, ladies. You'll identify with this. You've got a nice 
wooden table in your living room. You dust it down. There's no dust on the table. And then you go over and you draw back the curtains and let in the early morning sunlight. What do you see on your table? Dust. What do you see in the air? Dust. Did the light create the dust? No. The light merely exposed the dust. It merely showed you things in truth. And that's the function of God's law. When we take the time to draw back the curtains of the Holy of Holies and let the light of God's law shine upon the sinner's heart, suddenly he sees himself in truth. He sees we're all as an unclean thing and all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. (coughs) I sent this book to a friend and he wrote back this letter that said this. This friend of mine has always told me for the last eight years whenever the opportunity popped up that the law was finished with and that the Ten Commandments were basically useless. Of course, I tried to gently suggest that the knowledge of sin could come by no other way other than by the law. But this was always smothered in a sugary reference to love and grace. So I kept quiet. But I stuck my neck out last week and gave the book to a friend. And the next day he handed it back to me. He was crying and shaking with emotion. He could hardly speak. He said, I've just been born again. With the full impact of the power of God's Lord struck him and wounded him, showing him clearly how this day, several days after that, and kept breaking out in praise to God. <coughs> you know, Matthew six twenty four says this. No man has two masters. Either he'll hate the one, love the other, or else he'll hold on to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now today, our faith, and this challenges me, our faith is either in God as a sense of security, for the future and from that sense of security that we have because he's our Lord we have peace and joy or our faith is in money money gives us our sense of security and because of money we have a sense of peace and joy cannot serve God and mammon a Christian will bow to God as his master if God says something in his word We bow to the sovereignty of God. We compromise our convictions. We have certain convictions about something, like maybe as a new Christian I could have said to myself, well, I'm sure God doesn't want us to eat meat. Think of those little lambs, cute little lambs. And then I read in the Bible, for every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if you receive with thanksgiving, for it's sanctified by the word of faith and prayer. I say, oh, long live McDonald's. And suddenly, (coughs) the truth makes me free. I compromise my convictions because God is my Lord and I esteem his word. Now, the sinner does exactly the same thing with his God, money. Money doesn't talk. It shouts. And through money, a sinner will compromise his convictions. He will compromise his morals when money speaks. Now, on our house, you'll see there's a notice that says, the comfort zone. And often I have to break out of the comfort zone twice a week to go personally witnessing. Personal witnessing. I make myself do it. I disciple myself, discipline myself to go out and witness personally. I go to the local courts where people are sitting, waiting to face the judge. (laughs) They have transgressed the law. They are hoping for mercy. They are always prayerful. So it's an excellent place to go and witness. And I met a guy down there who was very anti-Christian, very, very angry against God. Didn't like me too much either, so I'd give him a wide berth. When I saw him, I'd just go around him and say, Morning! And I witnessed to these two people. And as I was witnessing to him one morning, I saw Mr. Nasty talking with two guys and eyeing me. 
And as I left, the whole three of them just looked intently at me as I walked past. And no doubt, he was warning them about me as a fanatic. And as I was leaving, as I've done with hundreds of cars, I'd put tracks under the windshield wipers. I'd just go, didn't even have to touch them sometimes. And as I did so, with the first car, and this was in public, there's a lot of you around, Mr. Nasty, one of his friends, as I lifted the first windshield wiper and put the track under it, he called out, Hey you! Don't you put one of those blankety-black things on my blankety-blank truck. So I thought, ooh, took it off, put it in my pocket, got my wallet out, opened up. He says, I told you, don't put one of those blankety-blank things on my blankety-blank truck. Got out some money, put it on his windshield wiper and let it go. And he said, oh, thanks. (laughs) His God had appeared. So he immediately prostrated himself. And compromise his convictions. That's why I often give money away when I preach. Now, not in churches, but in open ears. So stay there. When I'm given an open ear, we often have a funeral, a fake funeral. And at this funeral, to begin it, I say, okay, I'd like to give away some money. And I give away money to show three things. One, that faith without works is dead. The person eventually comes and takes the money had to exercise faith. He didn't just believe in it. He had to come and receive it. Two, it's an apology that so many in the name of Christianity have taken so much when we should be here to give, not to take in the name of Christianity. So, <coughs> often I give away money. And there's another reason which has slipped my mind. When you hit 40, don't things slow down? They really do. Life is like a roller coaster. You begin with anticipation excitement, enthusiasm. Go up over the hill, come down screaming, I want to get off. (laughs) Thank God for notes. The third thing is pride. People won't come and receive the money until I keep doubling it and doubling it and doubling it. They won't humble themselves for a dollar, but they will for 20. They don't care what people think. So I just say, well, you'll humble yourself for $20. God offers you everlasting life. And the Bible says the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. There's one chance in a million that Jesus Christ abolished death. You owe it to your good sense just to look into it. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Amen. So I often give away money at these funerals. So I put ten $1 bills in my wallet as I arrived in Louisiana, Baton Rouge. And this young guy picked me up, very zealous young man, and he says, we're doing a funeral tonight. I says, cool, that's great. He says, have a rest up, we'll pick you up soon. Went to the church, picked up 30 or 40 people from the local church. Then we went and stopped at a Walmart. And I says to myself, well, I guess we're going to buy something. No, that's where I was preaching. They stopped the Walmart parking lot and set up for me to get on a soapbox and preach. So I got up, you might have, I didn't. (laughs) (coughs) I got up on a soapbox and I began preaching because I've been stopped by the police over a dozen times. I mean, they come up with their weapons ready as they get out of As I was preaching, I'd gone for five minutes. Suddenly a security guard come up to me and says, You've got five minutes. I says, you're kidding. Five minutes? It's never happened before. Thank you very much. Another five minutes. That's 300 seconds. And I already have five minutes. So I kept preaching. Finished off, went to the local pastor. I says, Pastor, that security card came up. And he gave me an extra five minutes. He says, yes, I know. When I saw him come out, I said, see that preacher over there? He says, yeah. See all the people around him? Yeah. So they go to my church and we all shop at Walmart. <laughs> Thank you.
So then we moved to another place to do the funeral. And uh, as we're setting up shop, as we're just getting ready to preach, suddenly this van comes in front of us and pulls to one side about 10 feet from me, followed by a traffic officer on a motorbike with a siren going. And he parks his bike and he gets off and he storms up to this van, pulls open the door just 10 feet from me, grabs the driver and yells out real heavy obscenities. This is a, an officer of the law. Slams him against the van, rips the guy's wallet out, slams it on the top. He says, you thought you were smart, didn't you? And he was fuming. Then he reached in and grabbed these other guys. He said, you laughed, didn't you, when I told you to stop? And apparently these seven guys in a van had gone through a stop sign. The police officer said, stop. And they just smirked as they went past him and didn't bother. So, having wisdom from above, from above, I said to the guys with me, I don't think we should do the funeral right here. This officer of the law is fuming. Let's go over there. So I went outside this dance area and uh, a friend of mine got up on the soapbox and he began going through the Ten Commandments. And as he did so, streams of young teenagers came out of this dance and began scoffing and mocking. And I thought to myself... What I've just seen in the natural, I'm now seeing in the spiritual. You see, the Bible says the law works wrath. Those young people didn't obey the law. They mocked the law, and the law became wrath-filled. And so in the spiritual. They were not obeying what the commandment said. They were mocking the commandment, and all they were doing is Romans 2, storing up wrath that will be revealed on the day of wrath. Then the manager came out of the dance. He said, what are you guys doing here? Get out of here. I don't think any of the church people frequented that dance, so we couldn't do that one again. So we walked back. As we're walking past those seven guys by the van, they were looking bewildered. So I stopped. I says, hey, you guys okay? And one of them says, who are you? And I says, I was here when that policeman, uh, the officer for the law, did his thing pretty heavy. Huh? And they says, yeah, yeah. Then I walked away, and I went back to our group, and a girl of the group says, did you witness to them? Did you witness them? And I says, no. I didn't know what to say. And I really didn't know what to say. I felt like a person who had come across seven young guys that had skinned their knees and they were in pain and I come along to pour salt in the wound. And I really didn't know what to say. So I thought, I said, give me a moment. Then I walked up to them and I said to the guy who was the driver, I said, how much is the fine? How much do you think? He says, oh, I think about $250. I says, well, I'd like to help out. And I reached in the wallet and got out the ten one-dollar bills that I hadn't given away. As I went to hand it to him, I looked down, I couldn't believe my eyes. There was a ten-dollar bill that I didn't know that I had, sitting in the midst. You could see it sticking out. And it looked like I was offering them a wad of money. And all the seven guys said, Wow, that's really nice. You don't even know us. Boy, that's kind. <laughs> Whoa. And the, the, the driver says, no, no, we, we just couldn't take, I just couldn't take that. But boy, that's really nice of you. It really is. And that gave me license. You see, it says in Scripture, for so is the will of God, that by your well-doing, you'll put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So they would not have let me witness to them when they were angry. But that little show of love opened the door. So I reached in my pocket, and I got out seven pennies with the Ten Commandments pressed in them. I said, hey, you guys, I've got a gift for you. One, two, three, four. What's this? It's a penny with the Ten Commandments. I said, do you think you've kept the Ten Commandments? No, pretty much. So you guys ever told a lie? Yeah. You're all liars, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> ever stolen something? Yeah. Ever looked at a woman with lust? I said, you're lying, thieving, adulterers. Huh? And then I looked at the guy standing there. I said, were you scared 
when the law pulled you from that vehicle? He said, I was terrified. I said, that's because you broke civil law. But now you know you've broken a moral law. If you think you are fearful, wait till God pulls you, rips you from the seat of the scornful, and you stand before your Creator. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When he looked at three commandments, there's another seven facing. You guys got Bibles? You know that Jesus Christ died for you. Yeah, we've got Bibles. Make sure you read them. And while I was talking, the driver began, pulling his trousers together and began unstrapping something from under his sock. This is what he's doing. He looked embarrassed. And he had a plastic bag filled with whiskey strapped to his sock. The law had missed it when it frisked him. Believe me, on the day of wrath, God's law will not miss a thing. The law is spiritual, the Bible says. That means, when it says the law is spiritual, you, you can conspire within your heart to assassinate the President of the United States. That is against the law. But civil law can't touch you because it can't see your thought life. You're breaking the law, but it has no access into your heart. But God's law is spiritual. It requires truth in the inward parts. It goes right down to the thoughts and intents of the heart. And every man will give an account of himself to God, will give an account of the thought life. If you hate, the Bible says you're a murderer. If you get angry at that cause, you're in danger of judgment. God's law do a wonderful work that night. A little time after that, a little while after that, I was down at the local courts. And I, I sat down, it was, a, it was a cloudy day, weren't many people around. And I said, Lord, please bring someone for me to witness to. If it doesn't happen in five minutes, I'll go back. Go home. About four minutes later, a couple came and sat about 20 feet from me. And I said, no, Lord, I just said one person. <laughs> I don't like witnessing to couples. People aren't so honest when they're with another person. I was just one to them. And I was going to leave and I felt so convicted. I walked over to them. I said, how are you doing? I began to relate to them. And then brought up the subject of Christianity. I said, uh, do you think you kept the Ten Commandments? The girl says, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, have you ever told a lie? She says, yeah. I says, what does that make you? She says, a sinner. I said, no, no, a liar. And her mouth went, wah. See, people don't want to face sin and call it what it is. And then I talked about theft. And then I turned to the young guy. I said, you know, fornicators are not in here at the kingdom of God. Every hair on your head is numbered. You know what he did? He said, that's weird. And he put his hand in his pocket and brought out a book. It was a book of Bible promises. He says, I was reading this in bed at 4 a.m. this morning. I said, who were you with? He said, my girlfriend. I said, fornicators are not in here at the kingdom of God. He said, I read those two scriptures you said this morning in that book of Bible promises. I said, you know what you're like? I said, you two are like a little kid. His father had a gift of $20 to give him as a gift. It was in his wallet. And the father couldn't wait to give him the gift. And the kid had got into the wallet and stolen it. I said, that's what you've done with sex. It was a gift of God. You took something good and made it something bad. You need to repent, both of you, and get right with God. And get married if you love each other. Now, I'm often asked, would you pray a sinner's prayer with someone? And the answer is yes and no. And for the reason, turn to John 20, verse 24. But Thomas, John 20, 24, one of the twelve called Didymus was not with him. This is when the disciples were gathered together after the resurrection, when Jesus came. The other disciples... But therefore said to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Except I shall see in his hands the prints of the nails, and put my finger into the print of his, the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
And after eight days, Cain and his disciples were inside, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then I said to Thomas, Reach here your finger, and behold my hands, and reach here your hand, and thrust it into my side, and do not be faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Now, why did Jesus appear to Thomas on the eighth day? Well, for the answer to this, let me tell you, I've got three kids and I've seen my three children born. It wasn't as painful as I thought it would be. (coughs) But it was a wonderful experience. And with our daughter, the doctor was late. My daughter is always like this. She's always early. She likes to get things done. And she arrived a little early and the doctor was late. And so the nurse delivered uh, the child. And the nurse, not being too well up on things, cut the umbilical cord in slightly the wrong place. And consequently, it kind of went like a hose gone wild. That's an exaggeration. It just went... And blood squirted up from the, from the umbilical cord right across the face of the nurse and all over her hands. And, that. and we all just laughed. Because this was a joyous occasion. A life had entered the world. A child had been born. It was wonderful. The blood just spoke of life and joy. But imagine if the child had been stillborn. What a terrible thing to take that little, little corpse and wrap it in a towel or something and just put it to one side and look at the mother. And, oh, that life wouldn't speak, of, that blood wouldn't speak of life, it would speak of death. And saints, I've had ones that I have birthed into the kingdom of God. I prayed the sinner's prayer with him. And I thought the life of God had been there. I thought it was joyous. I rejoiced. But suddenly, they fell away. And I found I was stuck with a stillborn. And it was such a distasteful experience to think the life of God was in someone and it was just death in my hands. And I'd been responsible. I did the delivery. So consequently, I'm very, very awestruck and fearful to have anything to do with the spiritual birth process because I want the life of God to be there. Now, why did Jesus appear to Thomas on the eighth day? Well, on the eighth day, a Hebrew child was circumcised. On the eighth day, they've now discovered that that's when the coagulating factor in the blood, the prothrombin, is at its highest. That's when the body's immune system is at its highest. There's a right time for physical circumcision. And there is also a right time for the circumcision not made with hands. And the natural is the eighth day. And the spiritual with Thomas, it was this eighth day. And everyone must have their eighth day. You think back to when you became a Christian. You know it was God's time for you. But God drew you to Himself, granted you light, gave you understanding, and then saved your soul. Remember, uh, Jesus said to Peter, who do men say that I am? He said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Bless you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. He said, that to be born of God, God must be in the salvation, for salvation is of the Lord. And if we forget that every sinner has his eighth day, we'll just go rushing around and saying, let me help with the birth. And we'll end up with stillborns, prematures, ones that can't live because we haven't left them in the womb of conviction. There's a right day for sinners. 
Look at Acts 12, verse 7 again. <coughs> and behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shone in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side, and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off from his hands. You see, the church is filled with people who say they're Christians. They say they have gospel light, but the chains are still in their hands. They don't reach out to the lost. Their hands don't pull sinners from the fire, hitting even the garments spotted by their flesh. And they probably, the, probably the reason there are still chains on their hands is because they've never been smitten by God's law in the first place. I mean, why are there so few laborers within the body of Christ? Jesus said, he didn't say pray for revival. He said pray for laborers. That's whom he said to pray for, because the laborers are few. And saints they are in Christianity today, an evangelical magazine. Only 1% in a recent survey said they had a zeal for the lost. That is, 99% of the, re- of, of the readers of an evangelical magazine have got no zeal for the lost. In a recent survey also, done by the Barnum Research Institute, 68% of born-again Christians in the United States could not define the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Well, why are the laborers so few? Why is it that when you say, church, you love God, let's get together and on a certain night. We'll pray for the lost. Then we'll go out and give out tracts and find people to witness to. If you get 5% of today's church, you're doing really well. Why are the laborers so few? Well, recently I had occasion deep in the heart of Texas to have dinner with my friend Winky Prattney, a fine author and Bible teacher, who was also a New Zealander. He's got good blood. <laughs> and so because we were fellowshipping, this called for a steak. And so Winky cooked the steak and slapped on my plate, and when I cut into it, it was tender. Now Sue and I, for years, have wondered how you get tender steaks. We have tried, we've bought a steak, so said, oh, cook it slow, and it's tough. We cook it fast. It's tough. I'll try a different type of steak. It's tough. We thought, what's the key? I said, oh, Winky, how did you get this so tender? He said, it's real easy. He said, you get a hot plate, and you get a hot plate till it's almost white hot, and then you drop that steak for 15 seconds on one side, and then turn it over and sear it for 15 seconds on the other side, and what you do when you do that is you seal in the juices. You seal in the tenderness. And 3 a.m. the next morning, it suddenly struck me what it is that keeps the tenderness within the heart of the Christian. Because I thought, what is it that makes laborers? Why are there so few? Why is it? Is the laborers the ones that I know that are so zealous? Are they kind of born with a boldness? An innate boldness that just want to go out and witness? No. Because some of the most zealous laborers I know are very shy people. What is it that Spurgeon called a deep tenderness that was in the heart. You know why it's there? It's because they've been seared by the heat of God's law. That's what produces the tenderness. Now think about it. We have someone who's a sinner. He's in a dream world. He thinks that God loves him and is pleased with his lifestyle and he doesn't realize that the wrath of God abides upon him. He's living in a dream world. He believes that man evolved from this or he's reincarnated or or, uh, there's... Perhaps there's no God, he doesn't really know. I mean, it's just an unworld, philosophical rubbish going through his mind. And suddenly he's confronted with God's law. He's smitten with the law. 
He suddenly realizes that God's law is spiritual, that God's seen his thought life. He's seen the darkness as though it were pure light. There's not a word in his tongue that God doesn't know altogether. That God's seen a filthy lust and he's considered it to be adultery. He's seen his hatred and his anger without cause and seen he's a murderer at heart. He's a liar and a thief. He's been drinking in an like water. He loves the darkness. He hates the light. Neither will he come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. He's worthy of hell. He can see it. He's like a man who finds himself in a desert. Well, think of it this way. Imagine if I came to you tonight, you're sitting in a pew there, quite enjoying yourself, and I come up to you and I says, hey, let me give you this drink of water. And I grab your head and try and tip water down your mouth. You say, get out. I'm not thirsty. What are you doing? And you'd be offended, I'm sure. But then again, if you were crawling through a desert for three days, and your lips were blistered, and your tongue was swollen, and you're near death, and I come up to you and say, let me tip your head back. I'm going to tip this water in. Your thirst, the heat of the sun, would cause you to be eternally grateful for the water that I'm pouring into your lips. And that's the function of God's law. It puts the heat of the sunlight and the wrath of God upon him. makes him thirst for righteousness. And when the water of the gospel is freely given by God's mercy and undeserving grace, it seals within in his heart a gratitude that will burn for eternity. And if you're sitting amongst God's people and you haven't got that burning desire to live to God's will and honor and evangelize and do the will of God, it's probably because the law hasn't brought its heat to you. You see, it's very hard to bring the heat of God's law upon God's people when they know the gospel. If you know the gospel, you know God is tender and benevolent and willing to forgive and rich in mercy and mercy rejoices over judgment, I'm not going to better make you tremble because of that knowledge that you've got. And so what actually happens is you've been deprived of the impetus of gratitude. And without it, evangelism will not be a delight. It'll be burdensome to you. Because my motivation for evangelism is gratitude. You see, in Acts 12, when we look at that verse, look at verse 8 as we begin to pull this to a, to a close. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Gird yourself! And bind on your sandals. Oh, saints, we've got to gird ourselves. Peter heard this from the angel and he wrote it to us in the book of Peter, 1 Peter 1.13. He said, gird the loins of your mind. And that's what we need to do. Get rid of the clutter in our mind and say, hey, let me see clearly what God's will is. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Amen. Bind on your sandals. Saints, we need to get those gospel shoes and bind them on. Bind them on. Don't let anything deter you. From putting in those, your feet being sharp with the gospel of peace. And he did so and said to him, cast your garment about you. Put on your robe of righteousness and follow Jesus with all your heart. Let me conclude by asking this question. Would you sell your eyes for a million dollars? You think about it. Anybody here, would you sell an eye for a million dollars? Imagine if I was a doctor and I had authority under a new law to give you a million dollars for one of your eyes. Tax-free. We could take it out, replace it, eye transplants, replace it with another eye that looks as good as this one. It just wouldn't look as good as this one. <laughs> but you get a million dollars, tax-free in your hand. <coughs> Hands up anybody who would sell an eye for a million dollars. Seriously, if you would, think about it. You've got another one. Okay. Someone kind of put their hand up. Would you sell both eyes for 20 million? No way. 
Nobody in his right mind would even think for a moment of selling his eyes. I mean, if you sold your eyes, what would you do with the money? Oh, see the world! <laughs> Saints, your eyes are precious to you. And yet they're merely the windows of your soul. Your soul, your life, looks out the windows of your eyes. Shut the shutters, you can't see out. Your eyes are priceless to you, but they're merely the windows of your soul. And Jesus said, you are to despise the value of your eye compared to the value of your soul. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it's better to enter heaven without an eye than to go to hell with both your eyes. He said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for a soul? So of all the things you should prioritize in your life, it's your eternal salvation. It's not your marriage. It's not your health. It's not your vocation. It's your eternal salvation because all these things are merely temporal. Your salvation is eternal. And the salvation of sinners around us should be a priority in your life. You know, a pastor called me some time ago and he said, he was from Florida, he said, I've got to tell you something, Ray. He said, I've never been really zealous for the lost until recently. He said, I just saw myself as a pastor and people had the gift of evangelism. My gift was teaching. He said, but I pulled into a service station and went to get some gas. And when I was inside paying for it, God seemed to speak to my heart and say, tell that man about my mercy, my forgiveness. The pastor thought, well, there's kind of too many people around here. I haven't got time to wait. So I went back out in his car and he's just going to drive off and he felt God speak to his heart again. Go back and tell that man about my forgiveness. So you know what the pastor did? He says, Lord, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just pray. Oh, Father, bring a laborer across the path of that man. <laughs> so that's what he did. He just prayed that God would bring a laborer and then he just drove off. Felt quite satisfied that he'd done what he should. Two days later, he found out that that man closed up shop, went home, and committed suicide. What a tragedy. Saints, we have an awesome task before us. And my prayer is, oh God, teach me to number my days that I might apply my heart to wisdom. Duplication of this message is encouraged. For a complete selection of books, tapes, and tracks by Ray Comfort, write to Living Waters Publications, Post Office Box 1172, Bellflower, California, 90706.